theyeshiva.net. Okay, welcome everybody. Thank you for gracing us. I know it's a cold day. It's probably one of the only classes in the world, one of the only classes in the tri-state area that is outdoors. <laughs> January 2022, albeit in a wonderful and cozy tent. Today's class is dedicated by our dear friends, Harav Reb David and Rivka Feldman, in loving memory, Le'elu Nishmas, Rachel Le'a, Bas Reb Aaron, in tribute to the Yardzeit, Rishchai Deshvat, as well as Le'elu Nishmas, and in loving memory of Miriam, Bas Reb Tzvi Hirsch, in honor of her Yardzeit, on the fifth day of Shvat, Hey Shvat, to Hey Nishmasam Tzrura, B'Tzer HaChayim, and to be a everlasting source of blessing and inspiration for you and the entire family and all of us and all of the Jewish people. And thank you, Rabbi and Mrs. Feldman, for your uh, partnership and generosity and kindness and contribution. And may you have tremendous Hatzlacha and Avaydas HaKadosh, Larichis Yamim B'Shanam Toivis, with abundant Nachas and all the Brachas, V'Hatzlachas Adbali Dai. Thank you. B'Taych Klal Yisrael. So, one of the biggest questions in the whole story of the Egyptian exile and redemption that pervades the parshias of Shmaiz Vaira Bay Bashalach is the fact that the Rabbeinu Shalalam, God, right in the beginning, tells Moshe Rabbeinu that he is going to harden Pare's heart. He's going to make him obstinate, stubborn, reluctant to let the slaves, the Hebrew slaves, go free. It's not Pare's hardening his own heart that perturbs us theologically. People make bad choices, but it's Hashem saying it, God doing it. His, I will, I will harden Pare's heart. If you'll open up your source sheets, the first source is the first pasuk. Yeah, the source sheets are on the bima you could take. The opening verses, this is Exodus chapter 10. Parshas boy, Perik Yud, Pasuk Aleph. Vayoymer Adinoy El Moshe. Boy El Parai, Ki Ani, Hichbadati Esliboy Vesleiv Avadov, Laman Shisi Oisoisai Ela Bikirboy. Ulaman Tesaper Baozne Vincha, Uven Binches Asher Salaltib Mitzrayim Vesesoisai Asher Samtivam, Vidaitim Kani Adinoy. Hashem says to Moshe, Remember, this is already after seven plagues. The last three plagues, the first seven in Parshas Ve'er, the last three in Parshas Boy. So Hashem says to Moshe, go to Parai, or come to Parai, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his courtiers, of his, uh, of his servants, in order that I may display these signs amongst them, and that you may recount, you may recount this story in the ears of your child and your child's child, your children and grandchildren, how I made mockery of the Egyptians and how I displayed my signs among them in order that you will know that I am God, I am Hashem. And the obvious question is, if you made his heart so obstinate, so tough, so hard, then there seems to be no free choice. If there's no free choice... If you programmed him to say no, so why are you punishing him? How could you hold it against him? How could you penalize him? 
We don't penalize a lioness for pursuing its prey or a tiger or a bear or a hyena. And that because it's embedded in its genetic code, the sheep didn't choose to be a sheep, the tiger or the cheetah didn't choose to be a cheetah and behave this way. Do they have choices? <laughs> this is part of their disposition, part of their nature. We don't hold it against them. And yet here with Parai, Hashem blames it on himself. He says, And we find in the sixth plague, in the eighth plague, in the tenth plague, in each case, the hardening is attributed not to Parai himself, but to the Rebbeinu Shalalim, to Hashem himself. Already the Rishonim, the earliest commentators, were troubled by this. Because free choice is such a fundamental idea in Judaism. As the Rambam puts it in Hilchis Tshuva, the laws of repentance, if people have no freedom, then you can't give them any instructions that are meaningful. <laughs> I tell you to do something, it doesn't matter. You don't have freedom. Either you're conditioned to do it or you're not conditioned to do it. Obviously, you also make mockery of the whole idea of reward and punishment, of consequences. Everything is just, you can reward somebody and you can't penalize somebody. This is the famous words of the Rambam in Hilchis Tshuva in the fifth chapter of the Laws of Repentance, that choice is Amud HaTayr HaMitzvah, it's the pillar. It's the pillar of Yiddishkeit. It's the pillar of, of Tayr HaMitzvah. It's essential to what we call being human. Is that innate sense that I have freedom, we have freedom. And yet here it seems that God has taken away, taken away this freedom. There are different ways it's dealt with. There are many different answers. The famous one is the one that's given by Rashi. Rashi himself asks this question, which is unique that Rashi should raise a philosophical question in his commentary on Chumash, even though he puts it in simple words. And it's very similar to a response given by the Rambam, who was one generation after Rashi. Rashi passed away uh, in the early 1100s. And, uh, and the Rambam was born 1135, passed away 1204. So the Rambam was one generation after Rashi. Those who lived different parts of the world. Rashi lived in France. The Rambam lived in Spain and then escaped to Morocco and then to Israel and then to Egypt where he passed out, where he lived most of his life and he passed away there. But they both say a similar point. And that is that Hashem hardening the heart of Parai was not the cause of his punishment. That was his punishment. That was his punishment as a result of him choosing to behave in such an evil and horrific, barbaric way for such a long time, his punishment was that at some point his choice was taken away. It's almost like addiction. At some point, my brain is fried and I have no choice. That's not the cause of the punishment. That is the consequence. That is the punishment. There's another very interesting interpretation that was given by the 15th century great commentator on Chumash. He was also a philosopher and a physician. He's known as the Sifarno. Rabbeinu Evadia Sefarno, which is printed in, the, in, in many of the Chumashim. And he says that the relevant verb that's used often is chizuk, the word chazek, which doesn't mean to harden, it means to strengthen. And what he explains is, Hashem was not taking away Paroi's free will. On the contrary, he was giving Paroi free will. Why? He was preserving the free will of Paroi in the face of the overwhelming disasters that were hitting Egypt. In the face of such overwhelming disasters, what should have Pirate naturally done? He should have melted 
and say leave. He wouldn't really have choice. So Hashem preserved his free choice that just as if there wouldn't have been plagues. He has choice. So now even with the plagues, I'm making his heart so strong that despite the plagues, he can still choose. And he chose, of course, to say no. That's another way of looking at it. There are other, the Ramban discusses it, the Raiva discusses it, many, many Sfarim discuss this. Today I want to share with you an insight that really, I guess, comes from a spiritual, emotional, psychological reading of the story. And we're going to learn it inside. It's, it's a complex and nuanced piece. It comes from the Sefer, Moir Enayim, Parshas Boy. If you, if you want a source sheet, you want to follow inside here on the Bima, you have source sheets. The source sheets are also posted on the yeshiva.net if you ever want to review them later. Right here on the Bima. Just a few words about this, uh, about this Sefer, Moir Enayim, so you have a little uh, historical context. Moir Enayim is one of the earliest Hasidic works. It was authored by a man known as Reb Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl. The family named Tversky. Reb Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, also known as Reb Nachum Chernobyler, was one of the prized disciples and students of the Baal Shem Tev, the founder of the Hasidic movement. And after the Baal Shem Tev's passing, he became one of the great disciples of the successor of the Baal Shem Tev, the Rebbe Reber, the Magid of Mizrich. Reb Nachum, Reb Menachem Nachum, was born in the year Tov Tzadik. Tov Tzadik would be 1730. And he passed away, Yud Alev Cheshven Tovkuf Nun Ches, which is 1797. He's called Reb Nachum Chernobyler because much of his life he lived in the city of Chernobyl, which is a city in the Ukraine. It's become tragically famous in the year 1986. You remember? But he lived in Chernobyl, a city in Ukraine. And that's where he served as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a spiritual mentor, master, as a rebbe. And thus known as Reb Nachum Chernobyler, and he authored this work called Moir Enayim, which is a spiritual commentary on Chumash, much of the holidays, and it has a second section, Yesam Achlev, which is a commentary on different parts of the Gemara, the Talmud. As I said, he passed away Tovkuf Nun Ches, 1797, the beginning of Cheshven, and he was succeeded by his son, who came to be known as the Chernobyler Magid, Reb Matala Chernobyler, Reb Mordechai of Chernobyl, and many of the Tverskis today are descendants of... Uh, he had eight boys, all of them. The Chernobyl Amagad had eight boys. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the eight boys were his grandson, yeah. So uh, the dynasties of Chernobyl and Tolna and Skver and Racham Strifka and others are all descendants of uh, Reb Nachum of Chernobyl. In Parsha's boy, he raises this issue of free choice. And he presents a very profound perspective. He develops it as he goes on, because it's intricate, it's nuanced, and it's extremely relevant, I think, to the way we understand today the human brain. So he says, Hakushim of Fursemes, Mario 9 Parshish, but you see the second paragraph in the source sheets. Hakushim of Fursemes, Shazachra Mefarshim, Echnotel Memenu Abchire Shayroyalias Chavshis. It's a well-known question. The commentators all discuss this. How can you take away from somebody the freedom to choose? Well, you could, but then don't punish them or get upset at them. 
And this is a very important question. You know, when do we attribute things to choice? When don't we attribute them to choice? When should you get upset? When should you not get upset? Do people ever behave by choice, you think? (laughs) We get upset because we assume you chose it. What if you didn't? Okay, so you didn't. How do I know when there's choice? What does it even mean? Why this is such an important discussion today is because many psychologists, therapists, philosophers, theologians, evolutionary psychologists, scientists are determined to prove that we don't have choice. It's just an illusion. It feels good to say that you chose to come here today. And I'm certainly happy to give you the credit. But some scientists will tell you, it's your illusion, yeah? You disagree? (laughs) Both. Both. Is there a capacity? And do we have access to the capacity? Some say, if you know anything about genetics, you know. Just thank mommy and tati and grandpa and grandma all the way back from Adam and Eve for the genetic condition that I was, for the genes that were bequeathed to me that really define much or most of my personality, then of course you can attribute a lot to my home and to my schooling, what we call nature and nurture, of course to my environment, some to my friends, sociological impacts. But ultimately I'm conditioned to be who I am and to develop as the person I develop all down to the smallest, smallest gestures, words, reactions, emotions, Heart palpitations, experiences, triggers. What are all these? You're triggered by some things. I'm triggered by others. You're triggered by some people. I don't notice when they come into the room. Is there really choice? Here we see that God says, Pari is really stubborn and a lot has to do with me. So this is their question. We want to develop a thought according to our path. Our derech. And what he means here by our path is to see the stories of Torah, not just as historical events that happen at a particular moment in time, which is of course true, but also as a mirror of timeless events that continue to play themselves out in the human psyche. Nasim lev ledaktik milas eila, ba'omre laman shisi oisoisai eila bekirbai. He focuses here on what would seem like a very nuanced detail. The second post, the first pasuk of Boy that I just read with you, all the way on top, the first line. Hashem tells Moshe, come to Parai, because I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. In order that I may display these signs, these signs among him. Now when you say Eila, it's like you're pointing and you're saying these, right? You'll say Eila habakbukim, right? These are the bottles of water. Eila refers to something that you could point to because they're right here in front of your eyes. But Hashem is actually talking to Moshe. There's no signs and wonders happening right here in front of their eyes. There were the plagues that were striking, that struck Egypt earlier. There will be the plagues that will strike Egypt after this conversation. Remember in Ve'era were the first seven, and then in Bay were the last three. 
the plague of Arba, locust, and the plague of darkness, and the death of the firstborn, Arba, after which Pare finally acquiesced and surrendered. So he says, why does Hashem tell Moshe, I want to display these very signs amongst Pare. He could say, I am hardening his heart so that he should say no, so that the Egypt and the Jewish people should see the display of God's power, of God's omniscience, of God's omnipresence, of God's prowess, of God's infinity. I say, say, all of my wonders, the wonders that I did, the wonders that I will do. I say, say, Ela, the word Ela seems superfluous. Plus, it's not completely accurate. They're not right here, these wonders. That's his question. Loyla Mara Enavaya wasn't in front of him. But the truth is, the concept of redemption, the concept of the redemption of Egypt, was not just geographical. It was not just that the Jewish people were stuck in a country as slaves, and at last they can relocate to another country, they can be free. Of course it's that too. But it represents a certain condition. Das which means perception, ah? Huh? Das is perception, awareness. Awareness was in exile. In other words, Golos Mitzrayim, he says, is Golos Hadas. It's the exile of awareness. Vuhu, ki Hashem. It's expressed itself in the fact that the nation, not just the Egyptian nation, even the Jewish nation, didn't have divine awareness. We will see what that means, divine awareness. What does it mean to have divine awareness? It's not just awareness that there is a God. It's a different type of awareness, a much deeper awareness. That's why he starts off and he says, Das was an exile. All Das, all awareness. It expressed itself in the fact that the Egyptians and even the Jews lacked a certain divine awareness. Even though Jews had such a rich tradition, that came from their holy patriarchs and matriarchs, from their forefathers, the fathers of the world, and they had this Kabbalah, they had this tradition. Since this was already a fourth generation, stuck in the quagmire of tyranny and subjugation, true awareness has become forgotten. They had the facts, they had the data, they had the traditions, they had rituals, but hadas ha'amiti, true awareness, authentic awareness, was gone. The experiential awareness that comes with das, this, they were lacking. Not that they didn't have a glorious tradition from their fathers and mothers, they did. So how can you say their das was in Gullus? They had no deyes Hashem. He says there's two types of das. There's facts that they heard and that they gave over to their children, even in Egypt. But nonetheless, the Das HaMiti was gone. Before David's passing, he gives his final will and testament to Shloima, his son, his successor, to King Solomon. And he says, Da es and the Pasikis finishes, Know the God of your father and serve him with a complete heart. What is David HaMelech telling Shleimah? 
before he dies, what, didn't you educate Shlomo to know about God? What is he telling Shlomo? Know the God of your father. And if you want me to know, tell me what I should know. <laughs> I tell you, know this and this. You don't have to tell me to know it. Tell it to me and I'll know it. What is it going to help me to tell me to know something if I don't know it? If you tell it to me, then you don't have to tell me to know it. And if you don't tell it to me, telling me to know it is not really going to help. So what does David mean when he says, da, I want you to know. The answer is, I know you have all the information, but I want you to cultivate the quality of das. That's what I want. The data you'll have, I gave it to you. But what I want from you is to be able to open yourself up to the ability of the capacity, the skill, the faculty called das, which is not just technical knowledge and information. Information that could be defined as chachma, that could be defined as bina, but here it's a certain type of accessing the information in a way that is called das. Vizel ikir hagalos. And this is really the primary reality of exile. Shahayad hadas begalos bemitzrayim. It's the awareness that was in exile. It was locked up. It was in shackles. It was chained. It couldn't flex its muscles. It couldn't be exercised. It couldn't be used. When something is in exile, it's locked up. It's chained down. It can't be experienced. It can't be expressed. When Moshe and Aaron came to Pare and quoted the master of the world saying, let my people go, let my child go, Pare's response was, who is God? Mi Hashem. Who is this Hashem? Mi, mi Hashem, that I should listen to him. Shekafar be'ikr. He denied the fundamentals of reality. Parai believed in a warlock. He was a great uh, sorcerer, what's called warlock, Kishif. And that's what he believed in. So he was a wise man because he appreciated the laws of nature he appreciated abilities to manipulate the laws of nature. He appreciated and had sensitivity to what, the, what at the time were the sciences that Egyptians considered meaningful and significant. Of course, Egypt was at the time the superpower and the most industrious and progressive culture in terms of wisdom and science. But Pare fundamentally believed in nature and in its manipulation through what we call sorcery, kishif. Velayada Hashem. There was no real divine awareness of oneness. The Gemara says in uh, Tractate Sanhedrin, page 67, Samach Zayin, and also in Tractate Chulin, page 7, Dav Zayin, Reb said, When we say, there's nothing outside of Hashem, of divine oneness, it means the entire world, even Kishif, even that which seems so remote from, from divinity. Kishif, sorcery, witchcraft, even there you say, Einoid Mulvade, there's nothing outside of him. Even Kshafim, that the Gemara says, Rabbi Yechinen says over there, the reason it's called Kshafim is, Kshafim is a combination of a few words, Makhishim Pamal they try to tamper and deny and suppress the heavenly entourage. The fact that the world is governed by God, even the laws of nature are manifestations of the divine will. Kishif denies that. That's what the word kshafim means. 
Makhishim Pamalya Shalmaila. Even there, Einoid Movade, they really don't have a capacity to achieve anything if not for the divine will that they achieve something. The divine will, the Ratzin Hashem, is what pervades even Kishif. Even in Kishif, it wouldn't exist, nothing would exist if not for the divine will, even if it's completely concealed. As the Gemara tells the story about Reb Chanina, he says it's Reb Chanina ben Daisa. The Gemara says Reb Chanina, apparently he believes it was Reb Chanina ben Daisa. The Gemara says a story there. As I said, Sanhedrin, Samach Zion, and Chulund Av Zion, that there was a Hahi um, Issa, there was a woman who tried to do witchcraft on Reb Chanina ben Daisa. That's what the Gemara says. What did she do? She was attempting to take dust from under the feet of Reb Chanina ben Daisa and perform sorcery on him. And he noticed this. So he tells her, now what do you tell her? So he tells her these words. Amala, the Gemara says, he tells her, Which means, if you succeed, go ahead and do it. As we would say in English, knock yourself out. Go do it. Why? I'm really not concerned about it because there's nothing outside of Hashem. So therefore, what happens to me is because God wants it to happen to me, not because of you and not because of your kishif. Reb Chanina was living in that state of awareness, that level of awareness. As the Gemara says later, Reb Chanina was unique. He had that clear transparency of life. So what is the Moira and I am saying here? When Parai says, Mi Hashem, who is God? I should listen to him. He had wisdom. He was a brilliant man. But there was absolutely no das. No real awareness and perception of divine oneness. When God wants to liberate the Jewish people, what is liberation? Liberation is das. That your das shouldn't be in exile. There should be real das. Ulohoiris and teach them. Ki Hashem hu ha'elikim. That Hashem is elikim. Meaning, shehutakif abala yechayilas abala kachis kulam. That he has the ability. And he is ultimately the ruler of all the kachis, all the powers in the world. Every force, every aspect of nature. Is essentially a manifestation of divine oneness. Hashem hu ha'elikim. Amar, the words he uses to Moshe is Laman Shisi Aisai Ela Bekerbai to display these wonders amongst them, but it could be interpreted differently. Pare lack das because he's the king of Egypt. He is the one who embodies Egyptian exile. So he lacks das and he says, Who's Hashem? Atzarif I'm gonna combine these oisos, these letters. To him, the letters that were in exile, and the combination will make for a new word, but finally it will be wholesome. So it will come aware in the world and people will have the ability to be aware of I don't know if you got what he did over here. So let me explain to you. We translated the words, Laman Shisi Aisai Eila Bikirbai. 
I have hardened his heart in order to display these signs. Oisai, from the word ois, means signs. These signs among him. He asked the question, he's saying these signs, these wonders, but they're not here. They happened earlier, they'll happen later. But there's another commentary, there's another interpretation to oisai. Oisai comes from the word ois, which is a letter. Oisiois, our letter. Oisai, our letters. Parai introduced, when Moshe introduced God to Parai, what did he say? Me, me Hashem. Who is Hashem? Me are two letters of Hashem's name, Elohim, right? Elohim is made up of two parts. Listen carefully. Aleph, Lamed, Hey, which is Ele, and Yud, Mem, which is the letters, me. Elohim is Ele and me, right? Aleph, Lamed, Hey is the first half of the word, and Yud, Mem, is the second half of the word, which can be reconfigured as me. When Yaakov saw his grandchildren, Menashe and Ephraim, before his death, Yosef brought his grandchildren to be blessed. What was Yaakov's question? Huh? <laughs> right? Miela. Miela. Who are these? What, what do you mean? Well, you're here 17 years already. You never met them before? <laughs> Miela. And what's Yosef's answer? It's a big Kiddush. Bonayim asher nosanli Elohim. He says, who are these? These are the kids that God gave me. I didn't ask you who gave them. I asked, them who, who, I asked you who they are. Yaakov was asking here the big question, which will develop in Golis Mitzrayim. Mi Ela. Mi Ela is, of course, the opposite of the configuration of Elohim. Aleph, Lamed, Hey, Yud, Mem. It's first the me, and then the Ela. So Yosef turns it around. He says, Bonayim, Ashenosanli, Elohimbaz. That's not me, Ela. It's Ela, me. It's Aleph, Lamed, Hey, Yud, Mem. Parai again says, Mi Hashem, who is this Yud, Mem? Who? He plucked out, <laughs> right? He plucked, he segregated, he detached, he isolated two letters from the name of Elohim, Yud, Mem, and he says, Me, who is this God? So now, Towards the end of Golos, Hashem says, I did this all, Aman Shisi, Oisoisai, Eile, Bekirboi. We need to bring back the letters Aleph, Lamed, Hey. You hear? Laman Shisi, Oisoisai, Eile. We need to bring back Bekirboi, Tapare's consciousness, the first three letters. He says, Me, which is only Yud Mem. We need to bring back Aleph, Lamed, Hey. So he says, Now I will combine. The letters Aleph, Lamed, Hey, to his Yud, Mem, to his me. And what will happen? You'll have the full picture of Elikim. Aleph, Lamed, Hey, together with Yud, Mem. The full picture of Elikim is the revelation of Enoid Mulvadai, which is Hashem, Hu Elikim. Elikim, which represents, it says in Shachnarach, when you say Elikim, you think about the fact that Elikim, he's Baal HaKoychis Kulam, the master of all of the powers in the world. In fact, the word Elikim in Chumash is even used for judges. Like it says, Elikim loy sekalel, right? Elikim is even used as a ruler, as a leader, as a governor. Elikim is somebody who has power. So Hashem hu Elikim, the summation. And Elikim is the only name of God that is plural. There's no other name of Hashem that is plural. How do you say Yudke Vafke in plural? You don't. There's no plurality of it. We don't believe in polytheism. Elikim is actually not singular. It's not Elika, it's Elikim. In fact, you could say Elikim as judges, rulers, but there's only one God. Elikim is also the only name of Hashem 
that it lends itself and it's personalized in Chumash. For example, it will say, Ani Hashem Eloikeichem. Right? Hashem Eloikeinu. Eloikei velekei avisai. Eloikeinu velekei avisainu. Suddenly, it, 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 it's, it's a pliable, flexible name. Your God, my God, our God. You can't do that with the other ones. Yutke Vafke, it is what it is. Why? Because Elikim represents, in fact, the summation of plurality. Elikim is not Yutke Vafke. Elikim represents the manifestation of the divine that pervades and vivifies every individual atom, every molecule, every cell, every neuron, every law of nature. The world, our planet, and the cosmos is such a diverse place. It's really a singular place. But the manifestation of oneness in our world is with extraordinary diversity and multiplicity. So you could believe that you're living in a fragmented world, sometimes in an insane world, right? As your Baba would say, I'm a Shuganavelt, or I'm a Shuganavelt. Depends where she came from. But the meaning was the same. What does, it, what does chaos mean? What does Meshuggah mean? There's no rhyme, there's no rhythm, rhythm there's no symmetry. <laughs> it's, huh? Rhyme or reason. So Elikim means Hashem, who Elikim? Don't be deceived by the outer veneer. The summation of all the kaychas, of all the forces, of all the diversity is really oneness. Pari doesn't recognize this. Pari says, me Hashem, I never heard of this, me. Because Elikim lends itself to be distorted. That's why Elikim is also the numerical value of 86, which is the same numerical value as the word Hateva, the nature. Aleph, Lamed, He, Yud, Mem is 86, Pevav, the same numerical value, Gematria, like the word He, Tes, Vez, Ayin, the nature. Because Elikim represents nature at its best, nature embodied within every single organism individually and collectively. That's Elikim. That's why Elikim is also associated with Midas Hatzimtzum, the attribute of restriction, of concealment, of withdrawal. That's all Elikim. So Elikim lends itself to be segregated, to be isolated, to become detached. So Pari could take out those two letters and say, me. Hashem says, but what we want to show is that the me is part of Elikim. Because even when you separate a letter from a word, it's still part of that word. You just don't see the connection. And that's really a deeper understanding of the world. The Balatanya explains this in Torah, Parshas Vayeshev. The first dream of Yosef was, We were binding sheaves in the field. This is the dream of Yosef for him and his brothers. What are they doing all day? What was ma'almim alumim? When you harvest grain, you then have to make what's called sheaves, you gather the individual stalks and you put them into bundles and you tie the bundles so that you can have them stored in the silo wherever you put them in order to process them the way you're going to process them. So this is ma'almu ma'lumim. Why is that the main dream and occupation of all the brothers? Every stalk is an individual stalk. Ma'almu ma'lumim, it turns it into an aluma. It binds them together. We're binding sheaves, creating from the many one. What does it say on our dollar? Huh? unam, right? From the many, one. From the ribui, the achdos. What is this real? This is, this is the idea of ma'almim alumim. You live in a world where everything can be 
easily separated and distorted. Even within our own psyche, there's so many conflicting, chaotic messages that we have often in a moment or in an hour or in a day or in a lifetime. So when you have a word, let's take the word Baruch. Beis Reish Vav Chaf. The word is made up of four letters and it means blessed. Like a bracha, Baruch, Baruch Ata Hashem. Now let's say somebody detaches the Beis from the Reish and the Vav from the Chav. You know they have these arts works of flying letters, right? So the Beis is in the east and the Reish is in the west and the Vav is in the north. Now you just see the Beis. Do I see Baruch or I don't see Baruch? Right? I don't. I can't anymore. Even though Baruch is made up of Beis, Reish, Vav, Chav. But this is what the scattering does. What the dispersion does, what the separation does is, I see Beis as an isolated letter devoid from its context, devoid from its cohesive whole, that it's part of an organism, it's part of, of oneness. That's called the Shvira Sakalim, the fragmentation of the vessels, of the containers, of the lights. You don't see anymore the, the unifying oneness. So you could take away the Yud Mem from Elikim, and it becomes me. I don't know who you are, sorry. So Hashem says, Yitzias Mitzrayim, redemption is Laman Shisi Aisoisai Eila Bekirba. The Aleph Lamed He, which means here, should join the me, which means who? Me is who? Who are you? Me aim. Who are these kids? Who? I don't know. Ela means it's right here. Here it is. Ela is about conviction, certainty, clarity. Ela is there's conspicuousness. There is revelation. Things are not covered under the rug. Things are not eclipsed. Truth is manifest, is present. That's what redemption is. But after you go through an exile, you can't just say Ela. You need Ela together with me. You need to redefine the me, the question of who. You need to re- bring that into the Ela. That's Laman Shisi. There should be the Tziruf, the reconfiguration, the, combi- the combining. Bring back together the letters. So you have Aleph, Lamed, Hey, Yud, Mem, which is Elekim. So Hashem, who Elekim? One, two, fourth paragraph in the Moirinayim. This brings us back to our question. What happened to choice? Moshe Rabbeinu, at the end of his life, at the end of the Torah, Parshas Nitzavim, he speaks to the Jews and he says, See, I have placed before you the living and the good and the opposite of life and the opposite of good. And I want you to choose life. What does this mean? How can there be choice without awareness? Only when a person can have awareness and see the distinction between different paths, only when I can clearly distinguish different roadmaps, then the person could say, this I'm going to embrace, this will not define me. 
What is the definition of Egyptian exile? The das, awareness, was an exile. So there could be no choice, no real choice with das. Yitzias Mitzrayim primarily is that das went free. So now there can be a choice through Das. But when my Das was in Egypt, my Das was in Egypt, it was locked up. I can't really make choice. I don't have choices. I may think I have choices. But since I have no Das, actually I have Das, but it's completely locked. It's completely controlled. It's completely chained down because that's what Golas means. Das is in Golas. My trajectories and my pathways are so limited so there can't be choice. So choice wasn't taken from Parai. There was no concept of choice. This is exactly what Geula means. To liberate yourself from Egypt means to learn about choice. That is the redemption. When Das comes out of Golos, then choice can actually apply to something. Choice can actually happen. Ka'amur, as I said, what is he saying? When Hashem tells Moshe, look at Parai, he has no choice. He's not discussing now, how do you punish somebody who has no choice? He's actually explaining to Moshe, why should we leave Egypt? What's the value in leaving Egyptian exile? You know, many people didn't want to leave Egypt. So obviously, there's the physical components, people who suffered with this slavery and subjugation, torture, murder, genocide, that's on the very literal level. You want to go out of Gullus. You want to be a free person. You don't want to be tortured in Paris camps or in Paris' large, uh, Paris' large country that became a house of bondage. But he says, let's now take it to a deeper level, to the emotional slash psychological slash spiritual story. The Rebbeinu Shleilam is telling Moshe, let me explain to you what it means to live in emotional exile so you understand why somebody would want to leave exile. It basically means to look at Parai. Look at Parai. Parai is the king. The king represents the zeitgeist of the na- the zeitgeist of the nation. The king represents and embodies the spirit of the nation, the culture of the nation, the best of the nation. That's what a king is. A king, so to speak, the Rambam says that Hamelech who lave kol kahal Yisrael. The king is the heartbeat of the Jewish people. Zelumazet's true about Parai. Parai represents the heartbeat of Egypt. He embodies it. He reflects it. So look at Parai and you'll understand what exile looks like. And then you'll be able to contrast that and understand what liberation looks like. So look at Parai. What does it mean to be Parai? What does it mean to be the king of Egypt? What does it mean to be such a powerful and successful person? It basically means you have no choice. Kaved leiv Parai. This represents a life in which there's no choice. Why is there no choice? Because you're in exile. What's in exile? Physically, he's free. But my das is in exile. What is Gulas Mitzrayim? The das goes out of exile. The das goes out of exile. What happens? 
person can have choice. What does this look like? What does this mean? So today, and actually today's times, neuroscience has given us tools, at least to some degree, that I think, if I'm not mistaken, allows us to appreciate what Reb Nachum Chernobyl is saying, actually in a very real and practical and relevant and authentic way. One of the very famous psychologists of the last generation was a Jew named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Viennese Jew, a student of Sigmund Freud, who departed from the ideas, many of the ideas of his teacher, another Jew, whose real name was Schleimel of Freud, but he didn't like to be called that way. You know, Miela, he liked Sigmund Freud better. And Viktor Frankl was in Auschwitz. He was in Auschwitz for quite a significant amount of time. He lost much of his family, including his first wife. And he once said that if Freud would have been in Auschwitz, he would have seen another side of the human which he did not appreciate, which Freud did not appreciate. And he went on to develop the school of logotherapy and his famous book, Man in Search of Meaning. Frankel has a line that he once said, he said as follows. I can't remember it verbatim, but the concept is pretty clear. He said, between stimuli and response, there's a space. And in that space is where human creativity and human choice happens. Meaning between triggers, between that which creates a stimuli, that which stimulates me, and my response to it, there is a space. That space is where pchira happens. That's where choice happens. That space if there's das in that space, there is space, and then there's choice. If there's no space, if there's no space, this means there's no das, and as he says here, there's no pchira. So what does this mean in a person's life? Somebody says something to me, especially somebody who's close to me. It creates a trigger. I'm triggered. It creates a real response. And that trigger is felt. It immediately triggers thoughts, emotions. Often you can feel it in your body, right? Huh? In your bones, in your gut, in your kishka, in your bnei mayai, my intestines. Wherever it is that you feel it. Right here, right here. Right here, right there, right here, wherever it is. Your torso, your chest, your neck, your back, your head. A certain arm, a certain leg. Your husband tells you something. Your teenage child tells you something. Your teenage 17-year-old girl, 17-year-old boy, 19-year-old boy. Your mother, your father, your mother-in-law, your brother, your sister, your sister-in-law, your neighbor, your partner, your employer, your employee, your boss, etc., or you yourself. The trigger is very real. <laughs> I'm triggered. The stimuli just entered into me. And 
I'm ready to respond because my body is filled with responses immediately. You know, we're fast. We work fast. <laughs> we get angry fast. We get upset fast. We judge fast. We lose it fast, all internally. And by the way, your response may be that you shut down. That's also a significant response. In fact, many nice people do just that. I don't want to feel how I was triggered because it's too negative. It's too toxic. So what do I do? I already train my body. I don't feel anything. <laughs> That's also a response. There's a reason I'm not feeling. There's a reason I went out for lunch just now. I mean conceptually. Going out for lunch could be a very good thing. <laughs> Depends when. Depends if it's the middle of a conversation. <laughs> Depends if it's with somebody you should be going out for lunch with, etc. But it's also a response. And often there's no space between the trigger, between the stimuli, and my reaction to it. And how could there be a space? It's too real. You just said something that is so obnoxious. That's real. In fact, I've been feeling this about you for 29 years. You had just said something that was so rude, that was so insensitive, that was so self-centered, that was so selfish, that just fits into the rhythm of narcissism. You just said something that makes me so upset, so angry, so hurtful. And I am ready to respond. My brain is now filled with thoughts about you, or about this, or about me, or about life. One example, is there Pchira? Says the Ma'irei Nayim, at this point we have to ask ourselves, what does exile look like and what does redemption look like? The stimuli is the same in both. The circumstances are the same in both. The difference between Goyle and Geula is an Aleph. In Goyle there's no Aleph. It's interesting, I told you once from the Medrash, Goyla means exile, Geula means redemption. You would think that two such opposite realities should be different words. They're not. Goyla is exile, Geula is redemption. It's exactly the same word. Gimel, Vav, Lamed, Hey. And it has both the root of being exiled and being revealed. Goyla, Legalois. Goyla as in Goyla, have a Goyla go into exile. And also Gula, Gula Roshah is like a crown. The difference between exile and redemption is one letter, Aleph. Laman Shisi Oi Soisai. Aleph is, of course, the first letter of Elikim. Aleph means one. Echad. Achtos is one. Hashem Echad. Ein Soif is infinite. also begins with Aleph. Alufoy Shaloylam, the ruler of the world. And that too, Amunah, yeah. The first letter of the Aseris Hadibris, after they come out of Golos, is Anoichi Hashem Alekech. The beginning of creation is with a base. Biresh is bara elikim. It's elikim. Biresh is bara elikim. Creation of the world happens through elikim, which is hateva. The beginning of Aseris Hadibris is Aleph, Anoichi. Hashem elikecha. Both. Anoichi, Hashem elikecha. The I synthesizes Hashem elikecha. Because what's the difference of Goyla and Gula? It's not the facts. The stimuli was the same. The trigger was the same. The difference is if I have das. What does it mean if I have das? Everybody has das. Huh? Awareness. What does it mean? Everybody has das. The difference is not if, I, if my das is in gullus. 
Meaning, if I have access to it, if it's, if it's flexible. Everybody has a body, but the question is how flexible I am, right? Certain positions I can't go into. I can't. Somebody who's athletic, who's flexible, there's a, a more pliable, what we call plasticity. That's the word I was looking for. Does my das have plasticity? <laughs> the neuroscientists call it neuroplasticity. But here I'm talking about das plasticity. Das plasticity. I just made up a word. Das plasticity. Or it's shoved under the cover. It's shoved under the rug. It's confined. It's limited. It's put into exile. I don't want to hear from you. What's the difference? How does it, what does it look like? What does this look like? What does that look like? This is where the empty space is. Between trigger and response, there's a space. What happens in that space? My das may emerge. What does that das look like? The das doesn't deny. The das doesn't repress. The das doesn't crush. The das doesn't even judge. That's the hardest. Doesn't have to. We say every morning in davening, Avinu of Arachamon, Hamirachem, Rachem na Aleinu, Vesem Belibeinu, Bina Lahavinu, Lahaskil, Shmaya, Lilma, the Lama, Lishma, Velasas, etc. It's a very interesting prayer. We say it right before Kriyashma. Hashem, our Father, the compassionate Father, the one who's compassionate, please have compassion on us and put into our hearts understanding so that we should discern and comprehend and listen and learn and teach and observe and do. And fulfill everything with love and illuminate our eyes, open up our eyes. Why do we introduce this prayer with telling God how compassionate He is? We don't have a prayer like that. We mentioned so many times, we mentioned Rachamim three times. Avinu, of Harachamon, not enough. So you might say, we're saying, Hashem, please have Rachman as Abyssal Seichel, just give me Abyssal Seichel. But every, everything we ask for, you say, have Rachmanus and give me health. Have Rachmanus and give me tshuva. Have Rachmanus. This gift, this tefillah, we first introduced three times. Avinu, Ova, Rachman, Amirachim, Rachim, Naleinu. So the Balatanya writes in Torah Erva he says something powerful. He says, we're not saying to God, please have Rachmanus and give me das. No, we're saying something deeper than that. There's no das without Rachman. In his words, There's no awareness without compassion. So we're saying, I need the gift of compassion. So Only then can I have the wisdom and the discernment to understand, to perceive, to listen. What does this look like? That's why in the Sphiris, if you're familiar, Chachma, Chesed, and Netzach are the right column, Bina, Gvura, and Hoyer are the left column. The center column is Das and Tiferes, which is Rachamim and Yesoid, because they are what's called the Kavem Tzoy, the middle column, that Oila Ad HaKeser. This is Kabbalistic language, I'm just referencing it for those who may know what I'm talking about. If not, it's also fine. I also don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Rachamim and Das are directly dependent on each other. When there's Rachamim, there can be Das. When there's no Rachamim, there will never be Das. There will be judgment. Because what is Rachamim? Rachamim, compassion, means to become present to a reality 
without denying it, minimizing it, justifying it, rationalizing it, making it big or small, and also without judging it. Now, that's very hard, because either I minimize it, (laughs) or I repress it, or I get it out of my mind, or I say it's nothing, right? We love doing that. Or I'm like, no, this is not nothing. This is something, and this is sickening. To be able to be present to something without the need to manipulate it in any way, even in a righteous way. Without the need to make it what it's not. Without the need to define it in a certain context. Rachamim is just to show up with full presence to a reality with compassion. Compassion doesn't justify. Compassion is not naive. Compassion doesn't say it's nothing. Compassion doesn't say it was right. Compassion just looks at the reality fully, with full presence, without the need to run, which is a very normal need because it sometimes seems like a lion in the room. There's a lion in the room or a cheetah in the room. You know what that does? When there's rachamim, now there could be v'sein belibeinu bina, lahavin lahaskel l'shmoya. I can actually listen. Because rachamim opens up reality. It points me to truth. I don't have to manipulate. And when it opens me up to reality, I can actually have awareness. I can actually have das to what's really, really happening on a deeper level. Not just to react to it from my own instinctive fears, insecurity, defenses, or shame, which are all human and are all normal. It's normal to get triggered and respond that way. That space is not easy to live in. It's not easy to live in that empty space. That's the space where there's das. Yeah? Why is there das not in that tefillah? Why is das not re- referred to in that tefillah? You mean the word das? Yeah. Those culminate as das. Yeah, of course. When you say v'sein bilibenu, bilibenu bina. You see that paradox? V'sein bilibenu bina. Give us bina in our heart. What type of bina is in your heart? That's das. Because bina is cognition. Heart is emotion. So which one is it? The answer is das. Because das is the knowledge that's not based on data. Das is the knowledge that allows you to experience something, but to experience it with full presence. Das is showing up to something with full awareness, but full awareness that allows me to experience everything that comes along with it. And it also gives me an objectivity because I don't have to judge. I don't have to put it in a box. I can just actually be aware of what is happening, but not just as dead data or information. That's not das. That's just information. You could read that. That's text. Das actually is with your gut as much as with your head because it's it's the full awareness of what's happening. And yet without the need to run from it and put it into any box. And you'll hear sometimes, people often talk about things, but they're giving information. So it's like, I don't know the word, it, it, it's flat. It's flat because it's not alive. You, you feel the lack of life. It was never experienced. It was never experienced in a beating heart. It may be very good and it may be useful, but there's something that... I don't know, it comes across like there's a certain lifelessness in it. 
Das is the opposite of that. That's why the first time Das is introduced is you have the Eitz Das and you have Adam Yada as Chava, Adam Nu Chava. And of course, knowledge over there is intimacy. Adam had intimacy with Chava. Why is that called Das? Das, it says in Tanya, is Lashen Hiskashrus Vihishabrus. It's really connecting to something in an intimate way. It's the ability to be intimate. And intimacy is the opposite of running. Intimacy is into me see. Intimacy is the ability to be fully present at this moment, fully connected, fully aware, fully focused, fully present, fully present with every aspect of myself. But this is not easy. Why? The answer is because, as we know today, our brain is made up of different parts. And uh, it's fascinating because if somebody, for example, learns through the Tanya, the main thesis of the Balatanya's work, Tanya, is that we operate on different levels of consciousness. And he has four names for them. Nefesh HaChiyunis, Nefesh HaBahamis, Nefesh HaSichlis, Nefesh HaLikis. I can operate on a level of consciousness which is called the biological level of consciousness, Chiyunis, just to be alive. I want to stay alive. I can operate on a level of consciousness called the mammal's level of consciousness. I'm a good animal. I can operate on a level of consciousness called the rational state of consciousness. And I can operate on divine level of consciousness. So it, it, it's based on a, on, a, on a message in Rabbi Chaim Vital's book, Shar HaKadush. He was a student of the Ariza living in the 16th and 17th century. In the, in, the, in the 16th century. And the beginning of the 17th century. And in Tanya chapter 1, he right away quotes Shari Kedusha of Rabbeinu Chaim Vital, the student of the Arizal, who speaks about these different souls. Basically, two souls, the animal soul and the divine soul, but then more specifically discusses in different places, there's the biological soul, animal soul, rash, uh, rational soul, divine soul. When we look at the brain today, and this is not, when I say today, I mean literally today, this was not known 100 years ago. This is literally from the last few decades when neuroscience exploded and CAT scans could be taken and various scans and x-rays of what's happening in the brain and seeing the effects, for example, of post-traumatic stress disorder, seeing the physical effects, I'm not talking about emotional, the physical effects of trauma, of rape, of molestation, of, of, of abuse, of being beaten, of, of emotional abuse, of sexual abuse, and of anxiety that occurs in a person's life and they saw it on the brain. So the brain has different parts. And very, very briefly, the stem of the brain, the basis of the brain is what we call the amygdala. And the amygdala is often defined as the reptilian brain. It's the brain of the reptile. It's the brain I share with my fellow crocodiles and alligators. Now, not all crocodiles are big and scary. Some of them are very small. I once held a crocodile when it was small. Don't worry. And an alligator, when it was small, I went to one of these places. It actually wasn't, it was Florida? Yeah. Tampo, yeah. Tampo, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It even had a name. I tried to connect to it, but you can't connect to an alligator because that's the reptile's brain. But it has one focus. I want to be alive. And it is alert. It sensitizes us to our environment and it sensitizes us to danger. And in that, it's useful. It's a godly gift. (laughs) It's what allows reptiles to live. It's what allows us to alert our system to danger. And when that, God forbid, happens, we literally do whatever we have to do 
in order to survive, in order to live. This is called amygdala. Above it is what we call sometimes the emotional brain or the limbic brain or the mammalian brain, the brain of the animal, which is responsible for many of our emotions. There is a most deep emotional connection. Then you have right here what we call the prefrontal cortex responsible for reason. There could be objective reasoning. I could think about long-term goals versus short-term goals, long-term pleasure versus short-term pleasure. I can look at pros and cons, checks and balances, weigh things against each other, think about what's right, what's wrong, what's moral, what's ethical, what's immoral. And then what we have is the nefesh kiss, which is the awareness, the sensitivity to divine, infinite oneness. Every moment I operate on one of these levels of consciousness. Now in a fully integrated life, they're not contradictions. They all work together in perfect unison. There's a seamless flow. The amygdala is critical for life. If a person is being attacked, if a person is in a state of danger, and what does the amygdala do? It actually shuts down other things because it needs to use all of its resources for survival. What happens with trauma is the amygdala stays on when it's not necessary. You know when there's a smoke in your, in your somebody left a havdalah candle on for too long or they made latkes with too much gusto and the fire alarm goes off? You know what it sounds like here in Muncie, right? You can't think, could you? You can't, right? It makes you call the authorities, right? It's not just a sound. It's shrieking on top of its lungs. You want to destroy the battery. People do that, right? They take a bat, they start fighting with the smoke detector. Now imagine it never goes off in your life. What does such a person's life look like? And do you know that there are people around us that this life continues The fire alarm never goes off. Nobody sent them to memo that life is safe because life is not safe. Or at least in their perception, life is not safe because of what happened. It doesn't shut down. You think I could use my prefrontal? I sit in a house with a fire alarm. I can't do anything. Actually, they're doing what they're supposed to do, surviving. Now, 30 years later, this guy's wife tells him, You forgot to bring challah for Shabbos. What do you think he heard? You think he heard anything about challah for Shabbos? Here we go again. Somebody else who thinks I'm a loser. I'm incapable. I can't even bring challah for Shabbos. One thing I had to do for Shabbos, I couldn't do it. And suddenly he hears the same message that he may have heard from his mother or his father or his teacher or his principal or other people in class, or other people in the world, and suddenly it's reconfirmed, and now he's triggered so profoundly, of course he's, he can't even look at his, what's his response to his spouse? His amygdala is on, I'm in danger, she's going to kill me again. I'm again going to feel like the nothing of nothingness, with which, which a person can't survive. For me to protect myself, for me to give myself some dignity, what do I have to do? One of three things, fight, flight, and if I'm a real spiritual gentleman, freeze. 
Now you looked at him and he just froze. He's gone. He's not here anymore. And it may continue for two weeks. He's in a frozen state. He went into freeze. And now you respond. (laughs) Right? You respond to what he did. And it confirms all of your greatest fears, all of my greatest fears. How often do we live in that space? And my question is, how often don't we live in that space? You tell your son, it's time to go to school. I'm not going to school today. You see, parents, there's heart palpitations. Here goes my day again. Here goes my week. Here goes my month. Here goes my life. Four kids were struggling. Now the next one. Baruch Hashem shechiyanu v'kimanu v'giyanu l'zman I just need to get this boy to school. I'm responding from a place that is so instinctive, that has been conditioned. There's no pchira. There's no pchira. You could blame the person from today till tomorrow. We have so little choice. We're always responding from deep triggers that basically trigger us to things that have felt dangerous or positive, and that's where we're going. I become addicted to a certain type of behavior. Today they call it neural pathways. Imagine if I have a certain road that takes me to work, and I go on this road every single day. I don't know that there's another road. And the road is now blocked. There's an accident. The road is blocked. I'm stuck. But if somebody could show me, you know, there's another highway... (laughs) Then you can make a choice which highway to take. We have neural pathways the way my neurons are conditioned. When something happens, these are the neurons that I fire. This is the highway. My thoughts, literally, they're driving down a highway. These are my thoughts. I don't know of any other highway. They say it takes at least 66 days of changing behavior to develop new neural pathways so that the next time when you're triggered, there's actually options that come up in my psyche. So the Mairinayim says this is the key. Rabbi Nishalaylam tells to Moshe, let me describe to you what's the value of going out of exile. You could live a life in Paray's world. Paray's world means my das is completely in gullus and I literally cannot make choices. And there's a reason I can't make choices. It could be that much of the day I'm offline. <laughs> Offline means my prefrontal ain't working. It's just not working. Maybe 24 hours a day, maybe one hour a day, maybe in certain situations. I'm offline. And maybe even my limbic brain is not working. Or maybe a part of one of the elements of my brain not working. I'm now in the mode of Nefesh Achiyunis, Nefesh Bahamas. I'm trying to be a good mammal. I'm a chimpanzee. I'm doing what chimpanzees are supposed to do. That's what I'm doing. But the truth is, I always have a nefesh kiss. I always have a nefesh kiss. What's a nefesh kiss? Nefesh kiss is, my consciousness is really a manifestation of divine infinity. Which experiences the oneness in the world, experiences the oneness in me, and experiences all of life as a manifestation of God's light in this world, so that who am I? I am, you never heard this before, I am an ambassador of the divine. I'm trying to create new neural pathways. So I say it 6,600 times. It's the only thing that creates new neural pathways. I'm I'm an ambassador of Hashem in this world. 
I'm an ambassador of infinity. And I'm an ambassador of love, of light, of hope, of compassion. This doesn't mean there's no pain in the world. There's a lot of pain in the world. This doesn't mean there's no corruption. This doesn't mean there's no real danger. But it means I don't get stuck and defined by the abuse, by the trauma, by the danger. Not because it didn't happen. Not because nobody threw an arrow into my chest. They may have. That arrow was shot. That arrow may have penetrated a person's chest. Can you respond any other way but to protect yourself from an arrow? No! That's called gullus. It's no judgment. It's a fact of what it means. I have no pchira. Where does pchira begin? Pchira begins when I can discover my infinity. Pchira begins when I can discover the ability that despite all the triggers... I am not defined by those triggers because at my core, I'm divine and God is free. I'm also free. Hashem is free. I'm free. But what do you mean? I had a difficult childhood. I know. Now, this is not something that you speak about. Look who's talking. This is something you have to experience. This is not about words because the moment I finish, when that trigger happens, this shear goes straight to the garbage. It's like a big expert. Know what my life is like? You see, speeches don't hit the spot. That's what rabbis and rebbitsons have to understand. (laughs) Speeches don't hit the spot. They deal with the verbal levels of reality. Things that came in verbally, you can extricate verbally. Remember we once gave a share on kashras. Keboiloi, kachpaltoi. The way things go into the pot, that's how they get extricated from the pot. If they came in through words... A class can take them out. But what if they came from a place that's pre-verbal? What if they came when I was three years old and I felt abandoned? The love that I needed, the acceptance I needed, I never got. And therefore I developed and cultivated certain compromised core beliefs about myself. And that's the place I'm in. That's where my brain is. And I'm going to do throughout life whatever I need to protect that. And maybe to protect anybody of seeing it. What if I live with the deepest inner shame that I'm really unworthy? And if you ever find out who I really am, you're never going to look at me again. And you know, people live with this. They may not know it because it's too painful. But all of my life I have built protectors, bodyguards, to protect that, that little beautiful child from being exposed. Because he's so ugly. Or she's so, so grotesque. I will never let anybody go close. I will not even let me go close. And when you get close, I will fight, flight, freeze. I will whatever. Shut down. Be smart, charming, clever. All to protect. All to protect. Now you could blame this person, but where's the room for blame? You need compassion first for yourself. Compassion for my journey. Compassion for what I did in order to protect myself. You have to have compassion. Literally compassion for your protectors that are protecting parts of you that are in exile. That's what they call it in uh, internal family uh, systems. But the term you'll have everywhere in Hasidic works. A part of me that's in exile. It's in Gullus. My das is in Gullus. My essence is in Gullus, and I can't let it come out. It's too, it's too embarrassing. It's too shameful. I create good protectors. The protectors are not evil. 
My Nefesh Bahamas is just out of whack. My amygdala is just overreacting. It's doing what, it's, what is unnecessary to do. I heard such from Dr. Tversky, the Colonel of Racha. Dr. Abraham Tversky, he says he was in a hospital in his early years and there was a patient there. And the patient had his hands up all day, 24 hours a day. And they tried to convince him to put down his hands. And he would not. So they asked Dr. Tversky if he could speak to him. He was a Jewish guy. Dr. Tversky went into him and he said, Rabid, Rabid, I'm going to carry the world for a few minutes. It's going to be on my hands. And he put down his hands. He put down his hands. In his mind, he was, he was holding the world. If he puts down his hands, the planet falls and we all crack. We're all done. Cuban Missile Crisis. He says, I'm going to hold the world for you. And when I come back to give it to you, you'll continue. You got to tune in. I got to tune in. We call it Meshagas. But what does Meshagas really mean? Each person in their own world, I cultivate these protectors. And now at this point, my Nefesh Bahamas is doing things that are unnecessary for survival. It could be binging. It could be alcohol. It could be certain websites. Other addictions. What is it about? I may be in such a painful state that I have to distract myself and numb myself because I can't be in that space. There's too much pain. These are all examples of my nefesh achayunas and Bahamas doing exactly what they know to do in order to survive. I need a numb. I need a numb every single day. What's an exile here? What's an exile is my beautiful essence. I don't know about my beautiful essence. And therefore what's an exile here is my compassion. And therefore what's an exile here is my ability to look at it at all from the place of infinity, which then allows me to see the patterns almost as an objective person, even though I'm feeling all the pain, I'm not really objective. I'm objective even while I'm subjective. That's das. The ability to be objective while I'm subjective. That's a very deep moment in life. There's people who are objective. You don't want to talk to them. <laughs> They're called computers, detached. They may have everything, they may know everything, but nothing. Somebody once said, people who know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Or today people are reading more and more about less and less. There are people who are very subjective, but they're not objective. In other words, they're entangled in the quagmire of the reality. I'm going crazy. I can't deal. I can't breathe. I'm having a panic attack. This family is crazy, this marriage is crazy, these kids are crazy, this community is crazy, this, this, all of it is crazy. We got it. <laughs> Don't deny it. Das. Take out your das from Gullus. How do I take out my das from Gullus? <laughs> I take out my das from Gullus always through compassion. By screaming at myself how bad I am, my das is not going to come out. It's going to go deeper into hiding. When I can really be present to the reality, then my das can emerge. Because I don't have to run, I don't have to judge. And I can actually see. But it's always with very deep racham. And remember, avinu then there could be v'sein belibeinu bina. That's why if you're not in a state of rachamim, you're not going to be able to be in tune with das. I can't, I simply can't. Now this means maybe I'm angry right now. That's fine. I'm threatened, I'm angry, I'm in pain, I'm alone. I got it. Das doesn't deny any of that. Feel it. 
experience it, be present, have compassion for it. And when you have compassion for it, you're not its slave anymore. And you'll see there's a deeper place, the nefesh hasichlis, the nefesh halikis, that emerges. So between the trigger and the response, there's a little empty space. That empty space is where liberation happens. That's where gula happens. Golos, there's no empty space. We see it very much what we call impulse control. A lack of impulse control. You know, there's some people, they simply have a lack of impulse control. There's no space. Sometimes a kid will get into a fight. If he has no impulse control, you think the fight ended, and then he's going to hurt the other child. And later he's going to worry. A therapist once told me, he, the other child went to the hospital, and this first child, who was seen as the greatest perpetrator in history, was crying. He wanted to know if the other one was all right. He didn't even realize, because it wasn't a decision based from cognition. It was a decision based on a, simply a lack of impulse control. This doesn't justify, God forbid, violent behavior. It opens us up to what the struggle of the person is, so you can actually eliminate destructive behavior. But at first I have to have it on myself, if I'm to have it on my child, on my friend, on anybody else. Because if I don't have that vocabulary within myself, I will not develop it towards you. If I'm busy judging how evil I am, I have to do it with other people as well, even more. Because that's my safety mechanism. It's basically, you could love others as much as you love yourself. People didn't understand the Pusik like that. You can love others as much as you love yourself. Because if you don't develop that vocabulary with internally, how can I develop it externally? I'm going to finish the piece, but not inside. I'm going to do it outside, because it's late, but I want to complete the, the idea of the Marianayim. He says, this answers another question. It's, now, this is not an easy piece, and many people have struggled with it. I'm just going to say what I think he means. I'm not sure, but this is what I think he may mean. He says there's a big question that the Rambam asks, already the Zohar asks it, and many other ask it. How do we reconcile God's knowledge and our choice? It's the question that many 14-year-olds ask in school. <laughs> Some of them get better answers than others. Some of them get screamed at, which is very tragic. That becomes traumatic. Which for some people can become traumatic, yes. Especially if it's sustained over time. And generally, there's trauma that comes from learning trauma, you know. The program I did a few weeks ago with Rabbi Shimon Rusley spoke a lot about a kid who sits through five, six, seven years of class feeling like a loser and a failure. That creates something in the brain. <laughs> that tells me something about who I am, especially within the system. And I respond to that. And I'm triggered by certain situations, and I just almost have to respond. It's the best thing I can do. Like, like, that's all I have available for me at those moments. It's like you, got, you can't blame the reptile for being a reptile or the, or the gorilla for being a gorilla or the ant for being an ant or the mosquito. If I was a mosquito, I would do exactly the same thing. And you know what? Right now, I'm a mosquito. Sorry for the comparison, but that's my level of consciousness or a bee or, or a hyena, whatever it is, an elephant. Okay, we like elephants. They're cuter, more compassionate. But I'm an elephant. That's who I am, which is, which is nice. Or a little puppy, Nefesh Bahamas. No judgment. Understanding, awareness liberates. So he says, how do we reconcile Hashem's knowledge with choice? 
this is the big question everybody asks, right? If God knows what I'm going to do tomorrow, am I not forced to do it? If I can disprove God and choose what I'm going to do tomorrow, it means he didn't know. And if I can't choose to do something that was not in his knowledge, so then I have no choice. So if Hashem knows that tomorrow, I'm going to wake up at this, at this time and do this so-and-so, so either I say his knowledge is flawed, or my choice is compromised. How can both work together? It seems like a really, really serious question. Unless you say Hashem doesn't know the future, so I can choose it. Or Hashem knows what I'm going to do in 10 years, and I have no choice because in 10 years I'm going to follow God's knowledge and I can't change it. And the Murray Nayim says something, <laughs> I think very courageous and very deep. He says, in his words, I mean, they're incredible words, he says, we're assuming that God's knowledge and our choice are two separate things. They're not the separate things. His knowledge and our choice is the synonymous. God's knowledge is what makes choice. When we speak about God's knowledge, it means that he knows choice. That's what it means, Hashem's knowledge, which means as follows. What he's saying is something very deep. There's no real choice in this world. In that sense, the scientists are right. How could there be? We're all responding to something. Let's face it. You grew up in this home. You have such a mother. You have such a father. You have particular DNA sequences. This and this happened to you. If I would have been in those shoes, you would have been in my shoes. I would have been you. You would have been me. You have the choice for the color of your hair and the color of your eyes and your disposition and your metabolism and your height. Nobody has, everybody knows. So everything else you think you suddenly have choices. In other words, there's a bag of potato chips in front of me. Do I really have a choice not to eat it? You may be, not me. You like my excuses? My wife has a choice not to eat it. Right? She likes cucumbers. I like black and whites. I made that. Listen, I, I developed my taste for black and white. She grew up in a macrobiotic home. No sugar for six years, no oil, whatever. I grew up in a good home where love was shown through good food. Sprinkle cake, cheesecake, cinnamon, Shabbos. Huh? All Eastern European Jews. My baba was a tzaddik. As I came to her home, she wanted to show me love. What would she say? Yosef Yitzchak, S. You finished the plate. What did she say? Esmer. Babich kenished ottoman. Medaf essen. You have to eat. People who grew up with hunger, they grew up with depravity. This was real love. No judgment, but we have to understand it. So you tell a child, every prize is sugar. So what does that child learn? Sugar is good. Ice cream is good. Suddenly when he's older, no, it's horrible. Every prize in school was sugar. Right? A Danish equals goodness. <laughs> Tomatoes. Okay, survival. Your mother forces it down your throat for breakfast. In order to get ice cream, you do the tomato. But with all, with all, after, all the humor, after all the humor, which we can go on with for a while, but I'm not going to do my routine at the moment, since you've heard it probably, or you know it. <laughs> from experience, the bottom line is, how many choices do we really have? The answer is, 
Choice is a very, very murky, very difficult idea. There's only one source of choice, and that's infinity. In, in the language of, of mysticism, of chassidus, it's das, yediyas Hashem. God's knowledge of reality is choice. It means I'm never stuck in any event or pattern that I have experienced or I have developed. Now that's big. What do you mean I'm not stuck? Yeah, because I'm not a machine, because I'm divine. Shem is not stuck. God also experiences everything, but he's not stuck. He's not entangled. Can you experience life as God's light? That's the key. Over there, there's choice. But remember, the PTSD doesn't tell me that I'm divine. The PTSD tells me I am damaged. I am in danger. I need a scream. I need a punch. I need a holler. I need a freeze. I'm not divine. I don't see my power. Where does choice come? Choice comes the moment I'm in tuned with the divine perspective of reality, with the divine experience of reality. So he says the two things are not contradictory. That is pchira. What he may be, what he may, may be saying in a very abstract way is there's two types of freedom. There's freedom of choice. There's freedom from choice. Freedom of choice means I have freedom. You know, they speak about freedom of religion, freedom from religion, right? What was America based on? Freedom of religion or freedom from religion? Huh? <laughs> of religion. The founding fathers didn't speak about freedom from religion. When we speak about here, is it freedom of choice or freedom from choice? So the Mariannaim is saying something very deep. I don't know if we have freedom of choice. How many choices does anybody have? People tell me, oh, I cho- chose who the a guy tells me, I chose who to get married to. I'm like, let's think about that for a moment. There's two and a half billion women. Did you choose a little more? Almost three billion women, right? Yeah, you didn't have a choice between all of them. So there was how many women, how many girls did you get to choose from? <laughs> so let's say 30 or 40, but most of them didn't want you. <laughs> so there were three left. There were three left, right? Yes, huh? <laughs> One of them said yes. <laughs> One of them made sense. Why did it make sense? Because something in your brain said it makes sense because maybe you're trying to compensate what you didn't get from your mother, right? (laughs) The Basque, whatever, yeah. So how many choices? So you say, no, of course there was a choice. We call choice, we call everything choice. But is there really a choice? Is there really a choice? Really, really? But maybe there's a deeper type of choice. Freedom from choice. If actually... All the distractions can be taken away. And the need for me to choose a hundred different things is eliminated. And I'm free to find out who I really am. That's the ultimate freedom. What does freedom mean? Freedom means that I follow society. I follow you, social conformity. Freedom means I am I. I'm free. I'm living a life that reflects who I really am. The problem is I have so much static. I have so much interference. I have so much fear. I have so much guilt. I have so much shame. I don't even know who I am, for heaven's sake. Finding out God's knowledge is knowing who I am, and then I'm free from any distractions. So, of course, I choose who I am and what I am. And that choice is exactly the divine will, because that is the choice that is, aligns my posture with infinity. If it went over your head, don't worry, it went over my head. 
as well. We're in good, we're in good company. As long as you don't start telling yourself, I'm dumb, I never understood a class, because this is not one of those. It's really not about that. So as long as you don't go to that place and you say, I didn't understand, that's fine. (laughs) We don't wrap our brains around ultimate truths. We open ourselves up to ultimate truths and we hope a little bit seeps into the consciousness. And with this, and with this, so he says, we say, Hashem's knowledge takes away my free choice. He says, no, the only way you have free choice is if you tune into God's knowledge of tomorrow's experience based on who you really are. So you're free from any distraction. And that's where ultimate freedom is. Ultimate freedom is not that, who, who do I choose? What, what am I free? I'm free. Okay, nobody's pressuring me. So why do you choose this over this? Is addiction called freedom? If I'm addicted to something, I'm free. And what if I'm addicted to laziness? Am I also free? And what if I'm addicted to being a couch potato? And what if I'm addicted to procrastination because I'm frightened to open the envelopes because of the bills? And I can't handle life. What do you mean I'm free? I'm free to sleep all day. What if I'm sleeping all day because I'm so insecure about doing anything? Is that called freedom? What we call freedom is really a mockery of freedom. It's basically reverting to my my, my most reptilian, base, fearful instincts. That's not freedom. Freedom is that I don't have chains. And what if those chains are fear and shame? They're worse chains. So real freedom means get rid of everything. And what happens? What do I find within myself? I'm infinity. I am godliness in this world. I am an ambassador of Hashem. And then I found out what I really want, who I really am. And when I choose that, it's called a choice, not because of I, I could have chosen the opposite. Why would I choose the opposite? Why would I choose the opposite? It's called a choice because it's coming from my deepest place of freedom. And that's the secret of Bechira. And that's the secret of Geula. And that can only happen... Because there is the divine knowledge of what I'm going to do tomorrow. And if I can tune into that knowledge, I'm a free person. If I can't, I will choose based on the chemicals that are being triggered based on how I was conditioned. More productive and sometimes less productive and sometimes very counterproductive. Whew. I'm going to take your question in a moment. I just want to finish with this line. He says, this is the meaning of the second Pasuk in Boy. Hashem says, you're going to tell your children, What does his salalti mean? It's a very strange term. It's usually translated, I mocked. You're going to tell your grandchildren how I mocked Egypt. Like, is that really the point? Like, I did scavengers. I did comedy skits against Egypt. Okay, so let's tell our grandchildren that God made a show to mock Egypt. Was this really about mockery or was this about freeing slaves? So he says the word his halalti, as, as even Mepharshim pointed out, comes from the word oilel v'yoynik, which is a child. Mipi oilelim v'yoynkim, a suckling, an infant is called an oilel, like we have an echa. Oilel is a child. So the, 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 the Marianayim says as follows. A katan, Gemara says, ain't loy das. A child has no das. You can't expect from a child das. A child reacts. And that's, that's what it means to be a child. And that's why it's so important to be a child. Because as, as children, we have the ability to develop through our mentors and our parents who love us, 
those neural pathways that are productive, where our brain is hopefully conditioned with synchronization between Nefesh Abahamis, Nefesh Achiyunis, and to a certain level, Sichlis and Elikis, as much as it's applicable to a child. But you can't expect from the child to have that transcendent awareness. Katan ein das. Chazal say katan ein machshava. Doesn't mean children don't think. They think more than adults, I promise you. It means the type of machshava that can be transcendent and liberated from any strings attached to be fully present without judgment. So the Pasuk says, I want you to tell your children, I want you to tell them how small I was in Egypt. The Das was an exile. There was no adulthood reasoning. There was no prefrontal executive functioning. I was a child. There was Katnus because the Das was small and crushed. The purpose is, Vidatem ki ani Hashem. Vidatem. You should have das. Geula is that you cultivate das. And ultimate das is, das is Hashem. Awareness of the divine. Awareness of your infinity and infinity, which allows you always to be able to look at the reality, but appreciate that you're anchored in the transcendent infinite reality that contains all the other parts of the brain and is not exiled by the other parts of the brain. It contains all the parts. Bring Elohim together. Ela and me comes back together so that even the me, who are you? I can't deal with you. You bring it back to Elohim. And when you bring it back to Ela, the me becomes a source of power, not a source of abuse. The amygdala, the limbic, they all become part of your development, part of your full consciousness, because the Aleph, Lamed, He, and the Yud, Mem are joined together as the force of Hashem, Hu, Elikim, Enoid, Malvadai. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. Yeah. Very limited. Yeah. So you want to know who is the one who decides to have Das or not to have Das? <laughs> Good question. Ah. <laughs> huh? It's a great question, right? If, if I'm stuck, if I'm stuck, excellent. The answer is very good question. In other words, if I'm stuck in this crazy uh, temp set, is that the word? When you're... Uh, tempest? tempest, thank you. You know, as the kettle is going with sugar, right? It's whistling, come. If I'm, if I'm stuck in that place, and it's, like, it's almost like you feel like you can't breathe, right? Which, which, which by the way is what it says in the Pesach, like Shamuel Ruach. They couldn't listen to him because they couldn't breathe. Right? Because breath, breath, it's unbelievable. Breath is one of the only biological functions that happens on its own, but we can also choose it. Everything else, I don't choose to digest, right? I don't choose to oxygenate the blood. I don't even know what's happening. It's amazing, right? And then there's things I choose, yeah? I choose to sit or to stand. What about breathing? Breathing is the only thing you can both choose it and not choose it. I breathe it even I breathe even I don't think about it involuntarily, but I can choose to breathe. So breath, nishima, neshama is the path to neshama. That's why breath helps ground people and help them goes from the amygdala to the prefrontal, right? Breathing. So they couldn't listen to Moshe because they were short of breath. They couldn't breathe. Right? So Moshe had to teach them 
Neshama, Neshima, that's all part of Das. So when you're in that space, do you even have a choice? So you say you could choose to go to Das. So here is the deal. There's a part of you that you always have to know is free, is transcendent. I may not have access to it now. I may have no access to it. I am overwhelmed. <laughs> I am crazy. I am angry. I am pained. I am sad. I am dejected. I'm, I have no access to it. And I can't deny that. My body may even be shaking. I may feel this lump in my... Where do you feel the lump? I feel the lump in my throat. Ah, right? And that you have to respect. You have to have compassion for it. But when you're aware that this is just voices, thoughts, neurons firing, emotions, the body experience, it's not the summation of your reality. It's not the summation of your reality. So you always know that you can have an access to an eye, which is your deepest eye, that can actually be present in all of this without diminishing it, and yet without being swallowed up and schlepped away by the tsunami. You know, they have what they call the eye of the storm. You know about the eye of the storm, right? It's very calm. Huh? So there's people who learn how to live in the eye of the storm. It's like the vortex in the whirlwind. You know, right there, you don't run away from the storm. You're just anchored in a place that looks at the storm, feels it, and that's where I can begin to have Pchira. So that place is available for me always. That place is available for me. And when I tune into that place, there there could be Pchira. Because there I could say, wow, look at what's happening to me. I really got to see what's happening to me. And then when I could see what's happening to me, I could now say, what is the reaction that is going to reflect my deepest, deepest priorities and my deepest, deepest self? My most primal, primal motives. So this is a lot of inner work. This is a lot of, you have to get to know yourself. You have to get to know your divine self, not only your animal self. But when I do, and I always know that place is available, if I don't know that place is available, then really, then... That's Parai. I'm the king of Egypt. <laughs> I'm the king of Egypt. I'm just, I'm on, I'm on autopilot. And I enslave others just like I enslaved myself. Parai takes away choice from everybody. You know why? Because he has no choice. People who have no choice love to take away choice from other people. You'll see it. People who have choices, they like to give choice to people. <laughs> it's always that way. If I'm not independent, that you're independent. If I'm independent, I'm happy that you're autonomous. So if I know of that space and I can tune into that space, and I could, over there, there's Pchira. You could see Toiv, you could see Ra, there's two highways, and I could say to my neurons, you know what? I know you're firing this way, but there's actually a different way of firing. It may take 66 days of practicing till the brain catches on, but it's fine. Even at that moment, I hear the opinion... In Tanya chapter 13, the Baltanya says something very, very beautiful metaphor. He compares the human psyche to a jury in court. And he says as follows. He says, let's say you have a bunch of jurists, a bunch of judges. And there's a question of what to do with this particular, you know, accused perpetrator. And everyone says their opinion. 
And some of them say their opinion with force, you know? Some of them pound, like Khrushchev, you know, they pound, they pound on the table with their shoes or with their feet. Some of, and it's very powerful. And if you're sitting in court, you're hearing an opinion. But the, the judge who has to make the decision, he knows that the view of the jurist is not the verdict. And the lawyer knows it's not the verdict. It's an opinion. So he says, that's what's happening in us. There's a lot of parts saying opinions all day, very forcefully. And some of them pound on the table and they take over your body. But it's a jurist. So turn, tune to the jurist and say, thank you. I hear what you're saying, right? My husband is dangerous. My wife is dangerous. My kids are dangerous. My life is falling apart. I hate everybody. I got it. Listen, there's an opinion here. It's a very interesting opinion, actually. In fact, there's a lot of depth in this opinion because it's covering up a lot of pain. It's called a klipa. There's a lot, of, a lot under it. You, now, you may not be able to analyze it now. It's too tough. It's too intense. You'll do that later. But right now, tell the jurist, thank you. It doesn't mean that that becomes the verdict of how you live your life. Reaction has to be done by the verdict, the psakdin. The psakdin could be by your nefesh kiss. doesn't have to be by your nefesh Bahamas. Verstehst? Everyone has free choice to leave when you would like to. You also have free choice to stay if you would like. Yeah, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to disrupt that uh, silence. Thank you. Yeah. And um, I want to ask, how do we view now his books? Should they be taken off the shelves and never be read again? Or still take the good out? Like, how do we look at Listen, uh, you know, I think you should, you should ask your personal mentor or Rav. The, the, one of the bigger concerns is that um, if somebody has been abused that comes into your home and sees his books on the couch or on the shelf, it can trigger trauma. It's like a Holocaust survivor who comes and sees in a bookcase a respectable book from somebody who was a, a perpetrator, right? Or Richard Wagner's music they used to play in Auschwitz. So when Holocaust survivors hear it, it triggers them terribly. So if a, a victim of molestation comes to your house and sees on the couch or on the table uh, or the bookcase with respect this book, it, it could trigger a very, very harsh reaction. So we have to be sensitive to that, I think. Thank you for everything. If you want to hide it somewhere in your bedroom in a closet, that's, uh, that's already, uh, you can ask your love. Yeah, we all had them. We all had them. That was a disaster here, right? Everybody has his books. Thank you, Thank you for coming. The IFSB Institute, it's like, okay, you know, that's what they say. But when I learn it here, it solidifies it. You have to play with perspectives. It's much deeper. She have a lot of atzlocha. I use these models because they're very good. They illustrate things. They give me oisius. You know, CBT has beautiful ICS and, and ACT and, and the internal family systems, you know, somatic and EMDR. A lot of them, they have just different ICS that allow us to appreciate a lot of these concepts. Mm. You know, I don't think any system is Allah Halamayshamisina. Each one has its ain't but they give us a lot of ICS, you know, neuroscience, trauma studies, PTSD studies about. It just gives ISIS to, to a lot of the concepts, you know.
Shav of Hatzlocha and help your patience and yourself with compassion. Rachamim v'hadas Uyim Zebaza. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.